Talk Radio 191 FM podcast. Mr. Speaker. Alright, kia ora koutou everyone, this is Radio 1 Breakfast Politics with myself, John Moore, Geoffrey Miller and Raf will be jumping into the discussion as well. So today we're going to be talking about the New Zealand First Conference and, and certain divisions that are happening in New Zealand First and where they're heading as a party. Um, also the controversy about a cancelled feminist conference at Massey University and fo- finally a discussion about Nobel Prizes, the Peace Prize and the Literature Prize, mm. both which have become highly contentious political issues because Great. of who was awarded the prizes. <laughs> It's, and also we have um, Jeffrey on the phone today as well from Wellington. How are you, Jeffrey? Hi, good morning, guys. Great to be with you. No, heck yeah, heck yeah. Nice to have you with us in spirit, that's for sure. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so um, the New Zealand First Conference. Um, fascinating topic after the chief executive um, quit after moral obligations towards the financial records, was it? Yeah, so Jeffrey knows a lot more about that than I do, so maybe Jeffrey can lead off on that yeah. question. Sure, sure. So uh, this happened uh, about the start of October that the president of New Zealand First, uh, Lester Gray, uh, he uh, just suddenly resigned um, and he uh, cited uh, moral reasons. Uh, He said, I refuse to sign off the 2019 financial report. Um, The limited exposure I've had to party donations and expenditure leaves me in a vulnerable position. Mm. Type of operation does not align with my moral and business practice values, and I'm therefore not able to support the party any longer. So he wrote that on Facebook, and he resigned not just from the president's role, but from the party altogether. And there's some suggestion that New Zealand First does hide its donations. Um, it never really declares donations above $15,000, which is the threshold. Mm. Um, and there are ways that you can parcel up the donations into smaller amounts to kind of avoid this and various tricks. And to be fair, it's not just New Zealand First that does this kind of thing. All, all the parties, you know, will try and skirt the rules as much as possible uh, to keep their donors as anonymous as possible. Um, but, you know, it, it does seem that the president's been left in a bit in the dark over where the party's where New Zealand First money is coming from. Mm. And that's why he's, he's upped and resigned, really. Uh, in quite a dramatic way. Um, so, yeah, it certainly was a bit of turmoil for them. There were also leaks of uh, the membership database for Auckland, uh, which has about 800 members on it and had all their address and uh, email details and whether they've paid their party membership dues and so on. Um, so, you know, that's not a good look at all for a, for a party, you know, protecting the names of your members should be and their data should be you know, high priority but it does show some discontent within the party it's not clear whether this came through Lester Gray or through someone else um, I would guess that it's more likely to be someone someone else involved in the party who's disgruntled um, so you know we'll, we'll have to see if anything else comes of that and the conference itself at the weekend was fairly unified though so um, we didn't see uh, open division at the, at the conference uh, this weekend. Mm. 
and that's often the case. Uh, uh, political parties very carefully stage manage their conferences, especially any Definitely. part of the conference that is going to get uh, media coverage and has cameras in the room, uh, <laughs> which I think is a shame. Uh, the conference is an opportunity for ideas to be bashed out amongst members uh, and, and, and controversies to be raised, but often that's not the case now and the way politics is delivered. I think it was quite a boring conference in many ways, and it was quite different to com- the conference before the election, before mm. the um, uh, and before the coalition government came uh, into being, so to say, uh, which was very sort of uh, with this new radical anti-establishment zeitgeist, you know, sort of ba- bashing big business, bashing, bashing uh, the political elite, etc., being very much in the mode of, say, of Trump and other populist nationalist movements. But as was the case with New Zealand First, whenever they get in power, they they moderate a lot, uh, <laughs> and, and and that allows them to really uh, go into coalition with either Labour or National. But it causes problems for the party. Uh, they always slump. Uh, their support rates slump when they're in uh, power because they, they simply don't deliver on their sort of nationalist populist agenda. Agreed. Immigration's a big issue. Immigration's actually gone up uh, arguably under this government where it was meant to be slashed uh, uh, and that's that's a big issue for New Zealand First. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a uh, uh, and also the question of uh, where are New Zealand First um, supporters aligned? Do they want a national league government? Do they want a later league government? And so it's interesting to see that um, Winston Peters, although he bashed the National Party a lot in this conference, he left it open with who New Zealand First would go He's with after with the next election. He's like, he, yes. he often just sort of filibusters his own events with these big grand speeches. Um, I was fascinated by the article that talked about how when he left there was the gun supporter rally outside of the conference mm. and the notion that there is an alignment between gun supporters and New Zealand First voters which has been, you know, it's in strife because of the reforms that NZ First under this coalition have supported. Mm. Um, but I guess then that puts... You know, like like who's going to lead the party in the next election? Is the party going to do well? Is it going to reach the five percent threshold? It's all up in the air, surely. Yeah, and there's a. Uh, um, uh Rumours from the Beltway, uh, you know, inside uh, information is saying that th- there's real divisions within the caucus, and mm. especially there's suddenly developed a, a, a sort of um, a phenomena where it's a caucus against New Zealand, uh, against Winston Peters. That 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 respect uh, that that's always gone along with the caucus following carefully uh, their leader, Winston Peters. That mm. that has apparently collapsed. Uh, and, and people are seeing within the New Zealand First Caucus are looking at Winston Peters, seeing him on the way out. He's been ill as well. Mm. Um, uh, ostensibly uh, with an old rugby injury, but <laughs> not many people are buying that, especially no. for the amount of time he was actually in bed uh, unwell. Uh, and so a coming crisis for New Zealand First is the leadership question, as you mm. said, uh, who's going to take over as a leader. If it ends up being a rebellion against Winston Peters, uh, which, um, according to rumours, there is a, essentially an underlying rebellion going on, uh, and, and Winston Peters isn't seen to uh, uh, endorse any new leader coming from the New Zealand First caucus, I think that would be disastrous for the party. It could be the end of the party, because the New Zealand First 
is Winston Peters. It is. Like it or not, and in terms of its caucus, in terms of its members, it's Winston Peters, like it or not, for them as well. And so um, it could be an alliance-type situation where its leader, uh, Jim Anderton, uh, basically broke from the party uh, because he felt the party membership and a large part of his caucus had rebelled against him, and that was the end of the alliance, because the alliance was so much associated with Jim Anderton. I think the same's the case with um, Winston Peters. No, for sure. Uh, I guess then the sort of um, odd sort of social division uh, in the party, and that is now going to move on, I guess, to the similar social division happening in Wellington right now after the... Um, well, I think you, you, you can talk on this, can't you, John? Uh, about the Massey Conference? Yeah. The Feminist Conference? Yeah. So there was a proposed uh, Feminist Conference, Feminism 2020, that was going to be held at Massey University's Wellington Conference, uh, Wellington Campus. Now, a lot of people might say, well, what the hell is controversial about a, a Feminist Conference? We've got uh, various forms of feminist studies, gender studies, women's studies in the university throughout New Zealand, uh, lots of academics of feminism. What makes this particularly uh, controversial is that the conference was being run uh, by a group of feminists that are termed by their distractors as TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists, or uh, are self-labelled by these people themselves as gender-critical feminists. And what that basically comes down to is the idea that um, what is a woman? Uh, What defines a woman? Uh, Can um, a a transgender woman uh, define themselves as a woman and then have equal access to spaces and events and, and say, sports that are defined on the basis of gender, Mm. that are, are for the category of woman? Um, TERFs or uh, or gender critical feminists would argue uh, women are biological women, uh, mm. women born biologically at, at, at birth, uh, that they're oppressed, women are oppressed because of their biological sex and uh, many trans exclusionary radical feminists uh, would argue that women amount to a class, an oppressed class. So all this comes really from the radical feminism that developed in the 1960s and 1970s, often mm. referred to as second wave feminism, especially amongst its most radical and arguably separatist elements say so that came out of say um, various forms of lesbian uh, feminism, that that for women to end their oppression they need to organise separately and, and, and support uh, separate organisations, separate venues, etc, etc, for uh, biologically defined women. Mm. And the third way of feminism that came about in the 80s, uh, that concept of woman was questioned, and, and this especially came about because of the influence of postmodernism, uh, the the postmodernist philosopher Foucault, and then you had Judith Butler in America who took up Foucault's ideas and then incorporated them into feminism. Her um, most famous book is Gender Trouble, and she sort of tore apart or uh, or or um, critically analyse this whole concept of what it is to be a woman. Is there a united category of woman? Because uh, uh, people who identify women have a whole lot of different categories. Their nationality, their race, their class, etc, mm. etc. Uh, et et so to unify and lump all women together, she said, was highly problematic. But she also was open to the idea that um, 
people who might be seen as biologically men mm. for various reasons uh, have a, a gender identity crisis, so to say, that it's legitimate for them to take up a gender identity as woman. Mm. So at the moment, we're really seeing a clash between two types of feminism. Yeah, uh, deeply set ideologies that sort of are intrinsically opposed. Yeah, and, and the argument from the opponents of gender critical feminists is that uh, the ideology amounts to hate speech mm. and hate speech should be banned and we should even petition universities, city councils, governments, mm. businesses to, to push against uh, um, gender critical feminists, mm. feminists referred to as TERF. So this is what's happened with Massey. They initially were going to give a space to this um, uh, feminist uh, group to hold a conference in Wellington uh, and then um, after much protest, uh, they backed down and said, no, you need mm. to find another venue. Well, I mean, I guess then if the venue change is a key part of it, then it's not even a, a saying no to the event, it's a no to the concept, but it's still going to find its place. Same with the alt-right speakers who were mm. in New Zealand earlier on in this year. I think, you know, there is an audience that people are going to still want to hear that. Um, and I guess the question just begs... Is that the kind of rhetoric you want to be heard in New Zealand rather than just in, you know, uh, academic spaces? Yeah, so if you believe that the language and ideology of gender-critical feminists does amount to hate speech, uh, therefore there is an argument to say that uh, such speech shouldn't be allowed uh, mm. within the public space, uh, especially at universities, especially as universities are now seen as needing to crack a safe space for marginalised groups. Mm. The counter-argument is that um, universities should be a robust environment uh, where disagreement is allowed, where uh, radically opposing ideas are able to clash against each other, mm. uh, and, and there are many academics, uh, um, uh, doctors of philosophy, of gender studies, of politics, etc., who, who hold to the ideas of, of, of gender-critical feminism. Mm. Uh, and so to ban those ideas from a university is, is to ban the free speech of these academics uh, themselves as students who might support them. So it's a mm. highly polarised issue. Uh, so uh, issues of hate speech and, and free speech are at the fore of this debate and it's not going to go away any time soon. Agreed. Well that perfectly leads into the next topic which I think Geoffrey wants to talk about which relates to the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize and the Nobel Prize for Literature. Geoffrey? Yeah, um, yeah it's really interesting this was about 10 days ago now that the Nobel Peace Prize uh, was announced for 2019 and uh, the winner was uh, Avi Ahmed who is the Ethiopian, Ethiopian Prime Minister. Um, he became Prime Minister back in April last year and immediately started the process of political liberalisation, freed a lot of political prisoners and allowed dissidents to return back to Ethiopia without being locked, uh, fear of being locked up. So um, then what he really won the prize for, though, was um, offering to give up the disputed border territory that the country had had with Eritrea to end a state of war there that had existed between Eritrea and Ethiopia since uh, 1998. So the peace deal was agreed uh, back in July 2018 and land border was reopened in September of last year. So um, the Nobel Committee uh, said, and the, the Norwegian Nobel Committee uh, said in their, their, their explanation um, that, uh, that, uh, that Ahmed, he made it clear that he wished to resume peace talks with Eritrea and in close cooperation with Isaiah Afweke, the president of Eritrea, uh, Abiy Ahmed quickly worked out the principles of a peace agreement. So um, what was notable was that they didn't give it jointly 
to uh, President Afwerki of Eritrea and President Ahmed, uh, President Abiy Ahmed of, of, sorry, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of Ethiopia. It was given to uh, Prime Minister Abiy on his own. And uh, I think the reasons for that are that uh, Eritrea does have a very totalitarian uh, government and Afwerki uh, is a big part of that and uh, you know, torture and um, you know, all kinds of bad things are going on in, in Eritrea, so they didn't want to. They seem to be uh, rewarding rewarding that at all. Hmm. But of course, the uh, rumours of the Nobel Prize had been that uh, Greta Thunberg, the Swedish climate activist, uh, was uh, was the favourite. Um, Jacinda Ardern, our Prime Minister, had also been talked a lot about uh, uh, as a possible candidate to win the uh, prize, and the bookmakers had quite short odds, uh, firstly on Tumbri and then Ardern wasn't far behind, but didn't go to, to either of them. Mm. And it is interesting to, to think about why. Um, the Nobel Committee gave the Nobel Prize to Barack Obama about 10 years ago, if you recall, in 2009, and um, they were subjected to some ridicule for that, for just going with sort of the moment, if you like. Mm. Um, and. The criticism was that Obama hadn't really done anything to deserve the prize at that point. He'd only just become president. And, you know, sort of um, uh, just after he received the prize, uh, he was announcing, you know, sending further troops to uh, Afghanistan, So, which which goes against the criteria of the, uh, of the Nobel Prize as set down in Alfred Nobel's will. Uh, where he talks about the uh, price should be given for the abolition or reduction of standing armies uh, and for the holding and promotion of peace congresses. So um, I think since uh, that award to Barack Obama, the, the Nobel Committee has tried to be a bit more conservative and not give it just to you know the, the favoured name at the time, if you like, that's mm. on everyone's lips. Um, so um, they, they chose Ali Ahmed, who seems to be a very worthy um, nominee. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I think then, just to sort of um, run off the show, um, just um, if John wants to quickly talk about the um, the somewhat controversial winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, not for uh, any particular work he did, but for his body of work over his lifetime. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, strangely enough, the Nobel Peace Prize of Literature has become the most uh, controversial element of, of the prizes awarded this year. Um, the prize was awarded to Austrian writer uh, Peter Hanke, um, and uh, the the highest award in literature is, is seen as going to a writer uh, who, who exemplifies certain ideals um, in relation to literature. So his whole body of work was taken to account. Mm. Now, why it's so controversial is that Peter Hanke uh, is seen as a, um, a almost like a Holocaust denier, and uh, that he denies the existence of concentration camps that that occurred uh, during the Bosnian conflict in 1992. Uh, he was also um, a supporter of the uh, Serbian nationalist leader, uh, Slobodan Milosevic, uh, who was seen as uh, masterminding uh, uh, what's been described as a hurricane of violence against uh, uh, other ethnic groups, especially uh, Muslims uh, within the former uh, area that was Yugoslavia. Mm. Um, so uh, Peter Hunkel is seen as an apologist for genocide, but not just apologist uh, uh, for genocide um, 
uh, like we might see Nazis, but genocide that has ha- actually happened within living memory. Mm. Uh, that, that, yeah, I can remember that that, that conflict and, and horrific accounts and pictures and film that was coming out about uh, massacres against um, uh, Muslims in that area. So the question is then. Uh, are his views so toxic uh, um, that that uh, he should be denied any award uh, by any literary uh, organisation, but especially um, the Nobel Prize, which isn't just about uh, um, the quality of a person's work, who's an author, but certain ideals they hold. The counter-argument is that... Um, Yes, the, the the prize is orientated towards a certain someone who exemplifies certain ideals in literature, uh, but that uh, uh, Peter Hunker does in terms of his body of work, in terms of uh, the, 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 I guess the um, discussions around humanity and, and the soul of man and etc. Mm. That can come from a discussion of his work. Uh, so therefore, he is a legitimate candidate for that award, despite his other horrific views. So can we divide uh, um, art and the artist in that capacity? Yeah, or, exactly, and even temporality of those works as well. Um, well, thank you so much um, for coming on, John and Jeffrey. It's always a pleasure to, to talk to you both. Um, um, you know, hopefully, I'll talk to you again soon in the future sure. if I'm covering Thanks Jeremy again. Um, but yeah, no, have a wonderful day and coming up right now. This was a Radio One ninety one FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.